Well, thank you, Joe, for your testimony, giving glory and praise to our Lord. We rejoice with you at the work that God has done in your salvation and also your sanctification. And I appreciate your honesty. I'm a, I'm a hard guy, or I try to be, so I really appreciate your honesty with us and know that I'm very confident that God will work in you continually, that begin a good work, we'll finish it, and as you make much of Him, that God will be glorified in and through your life. Well, what a, what a uh, service thus far. It's a great time of prayer and praise. Um, I almost lost my voice uh, singing so uh, loudly, especially uh, much of you. And uh, it's been a very interesting week. I've been going out to Master Seminary this past week. There's a winter room class. Dr. R. Ken Hughes taught on 2 Corinthians. So Marcus and I commute, uh, carpooled every morning. I picked him up around 6.30 and fought through traffic for about two hours, and after class was over, fought through traffic for another two hours and got back, and man, I, don't know, I don't know how I went through seminary and uh, ministry and part-time work years ago, because I was, every day, I was just, just wasted, I was so just tired, and I was catching naps every opportunity, and it was really good to uh, have an extended amount of fellowship with Joe and Marcus and other seminarians as well. Just uh, share with you a good report that God is building up the seminary continually, that God is using her to train uh, future godly pastors to be ministering throughout the world. Jason and Joe, Joe Jung are also uh, being trained there for that. I was really um, encouraged and my heart was thrilled just to see God um, be faithful to that institution. Well, John 15, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to the 15th chapter of um, John's Gospel, step by step, verse by verse. For over three years now, we've been going, unfolding together the beloved Apostles' Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week was our first study on John 15, and we spent 70 minutes on verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. Uh, we discovered from verse 1 there are four principal characters in our Lord's metaphor in this chapter. Our Lord, he refers to himself, the Father, branches that do not bear fruit and the branches that do bear fruit. And he identified himself in verse 1 as a true vine. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. The only true life giver. The only one that grants true salvation. only one that grants eternal life. Uh, in the Father. And then he discovered uh, the identity of the Father, that he is the Georgos, a compound word, gay, earth, orgos, from the word work. He is literally the earth worker. Our Father, he is the farmer, the gardener. And then we discovered together that he has three essential responsibilities in the vineyard of this world. His first responsibility is to go to and fro in the vineyard and examine each and every branch. His purpose here is to see if they are alive or dead. The way he discerns whether a branch is alive or dead is by looking for fruit. If there are any fruits attached to this branch, he methodically and carefully scrutinizes each branch and he makes a decision based on this single criterion, does the branch have any fruit? And his second task is to uh, mark all the branches without fruit, essentially dead wood. These are lifeless branches that are interwoven with branches that are alive. He separates them. He cuts them away, he cuts them apart, and he takes them away. Go down a few verses to verse 6. Christ says he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches, they are gathered together, they are thrown into the fire, and they are burned. The only purpose for a, for a branch is to bear fruit. If a, if a branch doesn't bear fruit, it is useless. It serves no purpose. Only purpose is to throw it away and to be burned. And if you remember our study from last week, 
Remember the three passages that we reviewed, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, and Matthew 21, that concerning these branches that have no fruit, our Lord is referring to two different objects. There's a double reference here. On the one sense, he's referring to the future, all those professing believers in the church. They will look like Christians, sound like Christians, they will act like Christians, they'll be immersed in Christian activity, Christian events, even Christian ministry. Even in fact, they'll be used to propagate the gospel. But when Christ, when God in the end judges them, examines their lives, you'll find that there is no fruit. And he will say in Matthew 7.21, Away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And he will cast them out for eternal separation. That prophecy is still the future. And Christ, in a way, he's referring to these false believers here in verse 2. But if you remember those passages, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, and Matthew 21, you will remember that he is also referencing the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. He called Israel his vine. He called him, them his choice crop. In Isaiah 5.2, he planted this seed, he nurtured it, he built a watchtower to protect this vineyard from predators. He built a fence around it to protect it, and he cared for it, he watered it, he nurtured this vine. And in verse 2, when you look for a crop of good grapes, when you looked at Israel, instead of good fruit, it yielded only bad fruit. And down in verse 4, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? God looked for good, good fruit in Israel. He looked for genuine love and devotion. He looked for men and women who would be holy and righteous and pure and be a light to all other nations. But he found none. Therefore, what did God do? Matthew 21, he cursed that fig tree. May you never bear fruit again. And our Lord wasn't just angry because he was hungry and didn't get food. It was an indictment against this nation. This is God's judgment against this, this, this people. Uh, that he has cast them aside. That he has fors- forsaken them. Cast, he, he took them away and he cast them aside. Well, this tells us that God is not into sentimentality. Are you understand me here? That he is not driven by sentiment or, or, or false loyalties or false emotions. That he is a God who is just and God who is righteous and he will mete out his judgment and without even a second thought when he found no good fruit in the nation of Israel, he cast them aside. Let me tell you a story maybe to illustrate this. Uh, one of the sisters of our church owned a Jeep years ago. I think years ago, I went with her to buy this Jeep because I didn't want her to get ripped off. She asked me to come, so I went with her. And so we bought this Jeep seven, eight, nine years ago. <laughs> she drove that Jeep. Funny story came to mind. She drove that Jeep and Ran into things with that Jeep and <laughs> ran into several things with that Jeep. I'll keep her anonymous and I embarrass her. <laughs> well, after years later, you know, she wanted to sell that Jeep and move, you know, move up, I guess, in the ladder and wanted to buy an SUV. So she asked me, she should trade it in. I said, don't trade it in. Uh, I'll sell it for you um, because you can make more money by selling it, you know, in the public marketplace instead of trading it in. I said, okay. So I had that Jeep in my house and put it on the market, you know, Recycler.com, Autotrader.com, Yahoo.com. It took about two months, but we finally, some a buyer came, he looked at it, test drove, and he said, I'll take it. So I called the sister up and said, we need to sign papers and, you know, exchange papers, and we're going to sell this Jeep. She came over, she signed the papers, and then she gave this guy the keys, and he put, you know, he turned ignition, and he started to drive off. And then I said, I thought she'd be very happy. You know, are you going to buy me dinner or something for all the trouble I went through? I buy you this car and I sell it, sell, sell it for you at a higher price. And she starts crying. 
She's like tearing up. She's like crying. I was like, Kelly, what's wrong? <laughs> oh, I slipped out. Oh, man. I was like, hey, sister. What's going on? Why are you crying? <laughs> she was crying because... Oh, that Jeep and I, you know, for seven years, eight years, I don't know, we, we ran into a lot of things together. <laughs> Man, we grew up together, and I'm like, it's a car, right? I, I, just had, I just couldn't identify with that at all, but, you know, I was just silent, standing next to her as she <laughs> gained composure. She almost didn't want to part with it. She almost didn't want to part with it. Well, she's got a tender heart, you know, that's why we... Oh, is that so with God? Is that how God felt towards Israel? I mean, think about it. He promised Abraham out of this old man. You know, he waited and waited, and he had Isaac finally. And out of that one seed, God multiplied into 90 people. They went into Israel for 270 years, and they're slaving away in this nation. They're being oppressed and treated harshly. And they multiply the 2.1 million people and God calls Moses out. And through Moses, he redeems his people from the power of Pharaoh in Egypt. And he leads them across the desert for 40 years, a pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. And he gives them the tabernacle, he gives them the penitent, the first five books. And then he gives them judges to lead this nation and then to teach them and guide them. He sends prophet after prophet. And then he sends them kings, right? David and Solomon and all these kings. And he cares for them. And yet he finds no good fruit. What's God's response? Is he moved by sentiment? Is he an emotional God where he's led not by the principle of his laws, but... His, his sentimental emotions. What does he do? Note the severity and strictness of God's judgment. He casts them aside. He judges them. And he throws them away. See, we find out later in John 5, John 15, 8, our Lord says, bear fruit because this glorifies God the Father. This glorifies God. But Christ calls believers to bear fruit, be bountiful in fruitfulness because that glorifies God. You know, we don't have this in America. I've never seen one personally, but I've seen it in TV shows or movies. You go to a state fair and they have this like giant pumpkin or a giant cucumber or a giant watermelon. I've never seen one in person, but they have these things there. And, you know, whoever like has grown the biggest pumpkin gets a blue ribbon. They call, you know, Mrs. Nancy Smith up and they give her a blue ribbon and she's all proud because, you know, her garden produced the largest pumpkin, right? Well, in like matter, our Lord says, bear fruit because that glorifies God. Well, the opposite is true. Barrenness dishonors God. And when God saw His name defamed, when God saw His name was in fact blasphemed among the Gentiles, his name was made a mockery. It was a laughing stock. It was a joke because of the utter fruitlessness of his nation. There was no sentimental emotions towards this nation. God acted immediately and swiftly and he cast him aside. He is not a respecter of persons. He has, he's not tied to false loyalties or false emotions. Note the severity of God's judgment. There's a lesson for us. Turn with me to Romans 11, 17 through 21. And here, Paul, you know, I can't explain all of Romans to you, but Paul's question that he raises, has God failed? Has God's word failed? Because God promised to Israel to bless them. And it looks like the age of the church has begun. And the Gentiles are coming to the church. More and more Gentiles are believing in Christ. And the Jews, the Israel, Israelites, they're not following the Lord. They're not saved. And Paul's question is, has God's word failed? He's answering that question from 9, 10, 11. The latter part of chapter 11, here's a lesson just for us, 17 through 21. This is what Paul says to us, Gentile Christians. 
If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that, so that I could be granted, grafted in. This is a spiritual pride. Yes, the Jews came first. Yes, the Jews support us. We are, we are building on their foundation in a sense, the patriarchs, the law, the Old Testament. And so they were broken off so that we could be grafted in. There's a sense of spiritual pride because of our privileged position. And you say this, Paul says in verse 20, granted, that is true, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, do not, but be afraid. For verse 21, there is a lesson for us. If God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Read that again. If God did not, in the past tense, spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. If God is not moved by sentiment towards the natural branches, what do you think? It means for us, unnatural branches. If God rejects and casts aside His own people because they do not have true faith, because they do not have the kind of faith that produces fruit, how much more easily do you think God will cast aside unnatural branches, Gentiles who do not believe and yield good fruit, if you say, well, I'm part of the church, I'm part of the new covenant, I have spiritual experiences, I've been a member of this church for X amount of years, but if you don't have the kind of fruit, faith that produces genuine fruit, showing yourself to have false faith, showing yourself to be a person of unbelief, do you think God would treat you differently? better than the natural branches, if He cut off strictly and severely natural branches, how much more will He cut us away if we do not believe? Verse 21 again, if God did not spare the natural branches, Paul makes it clear, He will not spare you either. Paul's pastoral warning is found in verse 20. He says, one thing that will deceive you, from this warning, one thing that will deceive you and keep you from having a tender, humble heart to the Word of God, where you hear this warning, is arrogance, it's pride. He says, fear, do not be prideful. It's another warning in the Scriptures against spiritual pride. Reminds us again how pride is a dangerous, very dangerous thing. It tells us that God cast aside Israel because of their pride, because of their self-righteousness, because of their views of their own righteous deeds. To God it was like filthy rags, but they adorned themselves with their righteous deeds and, it was, and caused them to be proud and arrogant. The Bible is clear that, that the Holy Spirit delights to dwell in low places, that God loves humility, that he who walks with fear and trembling, that man the Spirit loves, but once when pride creeps in, there is no more room in the heart for the Holy Spirit. Proud souls quench the Spirit. Arrogant men grieve the Holy Spirit. Arrogance causes a man to be self-deceived and he mistakes things that are not true. We studied last week. That's what pride does cause you to look at things that are not fruit and believe the lie. Tell yourself that they are indeed fruit. Twice in the New Testament, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5. Twice it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble. If I may just go on a little tangent here, it's about spiritual pride. You know, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know how blessed and encouraged I've been with um, Ian Murray's biography on Jonathan Edwards. 
arguably the greatest theological mind this nation has ever produced in him. An eminently godly man, Pastor Edwards, an unequaled teacher and preacher and pastor of God's Word. He ministered in one church most of his adult life. In Northampton, he he ministered there for 23 years and 7 months. He ushered in the great revival of the 18th century, the Great Awakening, through his preaching. After 20 years of ministering there, his church rejected Edwards and his teaching. You know, much like Israel rejecting God, this church rejected their pastor and God's doctrine. They had a vote. It wasn't even close. It was a landslide. They voted to remove him as their pastor. The issue was on communion and professing faith as a requirement to uh, be part of communion. After this happened, all the Presbyterian churches in England, all the pastors said, we're not going to make that an issue. Look what happened to Edwards. If Edwards gets kicked out of a church because of this issue, who are we? We are not saved. It started the, the liberal movement, the burnout of that whole area. And one of the leading influences was this event of Edwards being removed from his own church. The question is often raised, how did this happen? How can this be? How can a church remove such a godly pastor? Edwards' fundamental explanation of what happened was that God has permitted such weakness in, in order to expose the evil of spiritual pride. Somewhat lengthy, but it relates to God and Israel. He wrote, quote, The people have, from the very beginning, they've been well instructed, they've had a good name for a very long time, Persons of good ability have been born, many born in the town who have been promoted to places of public trust. They have been a people distinguished on this account. These things have been abused to nourish the pride of their natural temper, which had made them difficult and unmanageable. In latter times, the people have had more to feed their pride, They have grown much greater and more wealth people than formerly and have become more extensively famous in the world as a people that have excelled in gifts and grace and had God extraordinarily among them, which has insensibly engendered and nourished spiritual pride, that grand inlet of the devil in the hearts of men, an avenue of all manner of mischief among a professing people, Spiritual pride is a most monstrous thing if it is not discerned and vigorously opposed from the very beginning. It very often soon raises persons above God's Word and supposed spiritual fathers and sets them above the reach of rule and instruction. And as I have seen in innumerable instances, there is this inconvenience attending the publishing of narratives of a work of God among a people. Such is the corruption that is in the hearts of men and even of good men. And there is great danger of making it an occasion of spiritual pride. There is great reason to think that the North Anthem people have provoked God greatly against them by trusting in their privileges and attainments. And the consequences well, may well be a warning to all God's people far near that hear them. End quote. What is he saying? Israel, because of their pride, forsook God, so God forsook them. We can stand here and point our fingers against the nation of Israel and judge the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the leaders of Israel at the time of the life of Christ. And yet, we are as deceived and as prideful as these men and women. It has happened in church history. Out of spiritual pride, this church forsook God and God has forsaken them. And that is what Paul is saying in Romans 11. If God cuts off with severity His own natural branches, how much more will He cut off the unnatural branches? 
The Father has three roles. Back to John 15. He examines every branch for his task. Second, every branch, natural or unnatural, Old Testament or New Testament, that has no fruit for proving that he or she is not a possessor of true faith. He takes away to be burned, separate from God forever. Third task. Second part of verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. What a comfort for us. First of all, if you are a Christian, there is fruit in your life. No matter how young or how old, there is definite evidence of true faith by the growth of spiritual fruit in your life. It is discernible. It is noticed by man and by God. And if you are a Christian, God is ever at work, tending to you, nurturing you, doing everything to promote growth in your life. Our Lord is referring to the act of physical pruning that a gardener does or a farmer does in agriculture. The Greek word for prunes is kathyro, and it basically means to make clean. But by the context of vine and branches, the sense of the word is that he prunes. The literal rendering is clean. It's important, this is important for, for verse 3. The literal meaning is clean, but by its context, it means he prunes. And so, you know, I don't know how much you guys are into gardening, but I'm sure all of us, to some degree, understand what our Lord is talking about. A farmer has many responsibilities uh, in the field. He prepares the ground. He sows the seed. He protects it from predators. He waters the field. Um, and when the, the field has produced the harvest, he harvests it. He brings it in. Um, but during the growing season, he has one responsibility that's essential and that is significant. It is the most important uh, step in the growing process where the farmer prunes the field, prunes the crop, prunes the vineyard. The farmer removes any part of the plant that is diseased or withered. If it is diseased, it will spread to other parts of the plant, so he cuts it off. If it is withered, it blocks the sun, he cuts it off. If there are parasites growing in the uh, vine or branches, he cuts it off. If there is any undesired growth in the plant, he removes it. He does this to make it more fruitful. That's the physical pruning. Now for the spiritual pruning, what does this mean for Christians? Our Lord is talking about how God removes all the things that hinder us from growing as Christians, from producing fruit. The idea, the idea is that God prunes, removes whatever is causing the believer to be stunted in his or her growth. God is feverishly working to grant holiness, maturity, and fruitfulness by cutting out sins in our lives, cutting out hindrances in our lives from this world. Let me read to you what Albert Barnes wrote in his commentary to John 15, verse 2. God purifies all true Christians to make them more useful. He takes away anything that hinders their usefulness. He teaches them, quickens them, revives them, makes them more pure in motive and in life. This He does by the regular influences of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying them, purifying their motives, teaching them the beauty of His holiness, and inducing them to devote themselves more to, more to Him. He does it by taking away what opposes their usefulness, however much they may be attached to it, or however painful it might be to part with it, as a vine dresser will often feel himself, to com feel himself compelled to cut off a branch that is large apparently fruitful and handsome, but he will cut it off for future betterment. 
So God often takes away the property of His people, often takes away their children or other idols. He removes the objects which bind their affections and which would render them inactive. He takes away the things around man so that he may feel his complete dependence upon the Lord and live more to honor God and bring forth more proof of humble and active piety. We must must note in verse 2 that our Lord does this not out of uh, a disciplinary or a punitive measure. He doesn't remove things in our lives to hurt us, to punish us, or chastise us as a means of punishment. He does it, verse 2b, that it may bear more fruit. That's the purpose. The transparent purpose of the verse is to tell us that God prunes us for His own glory. Go down to verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. God's glory is at stake with our lives. John fifteen sixteen. that's the Lord's will. That's why He has chosen us. That's the purpose of our lives. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And why did I choose you? To go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Well, the, the following, next obvious logical question is, how are Christians pruned? You know, what is the instrument that God uses to prune believers? You know, in the physical realm, you want to prune a plant in your backyard, you go to the hardware store and you get some shears, right? You get some those big scissors, right? Elongated scissors. Well, in a Christian, in the spiritual realm, what are God's scissors, God's shears? What, are, what is the instrument that God uses to prune believers? There are three common views that are proposed. First view is that believers are pruned by suffering and trials in life. When we lose a job, personal illness or infirmity or the illness of a loved one. When we lose property, we saw that with the storms this week. People losing homes. Or maybe a family tragedy, loss of a friend or a family member. People sometimes say, well, God is pruning you or God is pruning me for greater fruitfulness. God is hurting me. The errors of Almighty are in me so that I might uh, produce fruit for Christ. Another view is um, not just suffering, but if you suffer because of your faith, that is pruning, for, pruning by God. Only persecution, being scoffed, ridiculed, or persecuted because of Christ. Harsh treatment, even physical suffering because of the gospel, that is the instrument. Because every, everybody suffers in this world. Like non-Christians go through hardship. But for Christians, what's different is that we suffer for Christ, and that is the instrument that God uses to make us more fruitful. Third view, and the view that I believe is correct, is that God's instrument of pruning believers is primarily the Word of God. It's singularly God's Word. I believe that for many reasons in the New Testament, but the most immediate reason I believe that is verse 3. Christ said, Already you are clean because of the Word that I have spoken to you. I mean, a better, better translation of that adverb already is maybe now. Now you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you. That word clean is the same word, kathairo, as in verse 2. Now, you, you, might ask, you might say, hey, Pastor James, how come in verse 2 they translate a prune, and in verse 3 they translate a clean? What is the reason for that? Well, the literal first meaning is clean. But by the context in verse 2, it makes no sense if it's clean. By the context, it's pruned. But once a tree is or a vine or a plant is pruned, it is considered cleaned. And so the first meaning comes into play. So Christ is saying, you are pruned, you are cleaned. Now, all those things have been removed now because of the word that I've spoken to you. Another direct reference is in John 13, verse 10, 
when Christ was washing the feet of the disciples, and Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. This is crazy. This is nuts. You are the Holy One of Israel. I'm a sinner. You're not going to wash my feet. And Christ said, if I don't wash you, I have no part with you. And Peter said, then wash my whole body. And Christ said, you are clean. Right? You only need your feet to be washed, pruned, right? because your whole body is clean. And that's what our Lord is saying. If you're bearing fruit, you are a Christian. Right? But even Christians need to be pruned. Like having your feet washed. Have these things removed. But once in a point in time, now you are clean. At a point in time when these things are removed, and it's not a once in a lifetime event, it's a continual thing. But when that has happened, you have been pruned. How has the believer been pruned? By the Word of God. The instrument that God uses to prune believers is the Scriptures. John 17, 17. Christ said, sanctify them by your truth. Hagaizo, set them apart. The root word is holy. Make them pure. Make them holy by the truth. Your word. The word of God is truth. About Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Paul said, husbands, love your wives to make her holy. How, do, how does husbands make their wives holy? By washing them with the water of God's word. Husbands, as we shepherd our wives, teach them, instruct them, exhort them in the water of God's Word, we are cleansing them, we're purifying them, we're making them pure and holy. Likewise, with God to us. 1 Peter 1.22 You have been purified by obeying the truth. You've been purified by obeying the truth. Dr. James Roscoff said, quote, We credit the word alone as the pruning instrument. A trial can bring pressure to bear upon spiritual muscles and be used to develop them. But the word, not the trial itself, is the instrument working within the Christian to prune away attitudes, words, and deeds that please self and to replace these with others that honor God. This is important. It highlights to us that the Word of God is sufficient for our salvation. And to grow as Christians, I mean, we want people to go to missions, but we don't have to go to missions to grow as believers. You know, we don't have to experience some kind of devastating loss or some kind of heartache or trial or hardship. We don't seek after these experiences or or so the hardship in life, and say, you know what, I, I can't be sanctified until I go through that. And some believers, they kind of seek these things out in a narcissistic way, as if that is the way to spiritual maturity. No. The Word of God alone is sufficient for our salvation and also our sanctification. Second Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God is sufficient to produce in a man and equip him and train him for every good work. Right? Now, what role does suffering, trials, and affliction have then in our sanctification? Um, let me read to you several quotes and maybe you could write some words down to kind of help you think through these things with me. F.B. Meyer in his commentary on Hebrews 12, 4-12. And Hebrews 12, and I don't want to get too involved in this, but the writer talks about the Father disciplining us because He loves us. And, and the, the Father chastises us because He loves His children. And how God disciplines us because of His own love for us. Now why, why do parents discipline their children? To teach them the seriousness of God's Word. The seriousness of sin. So that they might be alerted to the Word of God. Well, likewise, for the Christian, God causes us to go through suffering 
and hardship and heartache and trials and afflictions. Not because that's the instrument to purify us. No, He does that to wake us up. So that we would realize the truthfulness and the seriousness of the Word of God. F.B. Meyer said, The Father's discipline is not that we would expiate the wrongdoing by suffering. It's not the Catholic mentality where they flagellate themselves, you know, they hurt their bodies, they beat their bodies, and go through these you know, rigorous fasting against mortify sin in their flesh. That's not the way to sanctification. No, it's not that we expiate wrongdoing by suffering, but that we may be compared, compelled to be guarded in His true light. Amid the pain we suffer, we are compelled to review our path. Isn't that true? When we go through some kind of suffering in life, then it causes us to stop and review and evaluate our lives and look at our, our past year, our past years, and review the carelessness, the unwatchfulness, the prayerlessness, which have been working within us, pass slowly before our minds, we see where we have been going astray for long months or years, how we have been grieving the Holy Spirit, times of affliction lead us to heart searchings, right? and it brings us to a new awareness and a realization of God's Word. Andrew Murray said, What is the pruning knife? of the father, the gardener, it is often said to be affliction by no means in the first place. No, it is the word of God that is the knife. It is only when affliction leads to this discipline of the word that it becomes a blessing. The lack of this heart cleansing to the word is the reason why affliction is so often unsanctified. One more last quote. Charles Hansburgen said, it is the Word that prunes the Christian. It is the truth that purges him. The Scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit effectually cleanses the Christian. What then does affliction do, say you? Well, if I may say so, affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the dresser which removes our soft garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so that the surgeon's knife may get at it. Get at it. Affliction makes us ready to feel the Word. But the true pruner is the Word and the hand of the great gardener. That's so very important. Sometimes believers say, Oh, Pastor James, I was so moved by the Word of God today. And sometimes I think, it's not because the Word of God was more pure today than last week. I mean, from the pulpit here, every week, all we want to do is present the Word of God. But today, the Word, was God, Word of God was more alive to you because simply you're more alert. And how are you more alert? Because of suffering. Because of affliction and trials in your life. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures. When we're comfortable, God whispers. But God shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. How does God give us ears to hear the Word of God? It is pain, suffering, and heartache. But, they, but those things are not what causes us to grow it is the degree that that affliction caused us to cling and embrace and submit to God's Word. Psalm 119.71, the psalmist said, It was good for me to be afflicted. It was good so that I might learn your decrees. It was good. Spurgeon said, Those who dive in the deep sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. I love that. Right. As I look at my life, the most precious times was when I went through suffering, when I was afflicted, when I, my soul was downcast, when ministry was tough, when there was heartache in my life, in my family. That's when I was alert to God's Word and I grew. I'm not some kind of narcissist. I, I like comfort. You know, I like air conditioning, right? In the cold night, I like to raise the heater. 
Right? I like to be comfortable. I like pleasure in life. I'm not a super human being or a super Christian. No. But I love suffering and affliction because when I look back, those were times that God used to awaken me to the preciousness of the Word of God. My wife and I talk about this often. You know, eight years of marriage, uh, we had some good times and we had some difficult times. And we look back, all the laughs that we've had, and we've had many laughs, I'll tell you that much. But they're so fleeting. It's momentary, right? But there are some times when God tested us individually in our relationship, and we look back and we talk about, well, that's when we grew. That's when, man, I, I took seriously Ephesians 5 as a husband. Before then, I was like, ah, being a husband, ah, what's so important about that? You know, just kind of wing it. You know, God will take care of the, He'll take care of the rest. But when we're suffering, I was like, man, James, I've got to wake up. I've got to be serious about my role as a husband. You know, my, likewise, my wife. Same thing in ministry. When times were, look back, there were times in lean years that we were not growing, we were shrinking. People were just infighting, and there were just all these horrible things going on. That's when I said ministry is not a joke. My prayer life is important. The Word is true. That's when God shouted to the Word of God, and I took God's Word seriously to grow as a believer. I look back at my own life, and I look at my failures, and the painful lessons. And if, I, if, those, things, if those things didn't lead me to the Word of God, it was a waste. I suffered in vain. You know, sometimes some of you guys today are suffering in vain. You're going through heartache and suffering and hardship, and you're just pounding your head against the wall, and same thing year in and year out. Why? Because you're not turning to the Word of God. You, just, you think somehow by going through suffering, you're going to grow. But same thing every year. In vain until you learn God's decrees, God's precepts, the truths of God's Word. The instrument that God uses to prune us is the Scriptures. A few final thoughts. First of all, you know, what is your current greatest difficulty? Everyone here can say, wow, right now, I just, you know, got out of a real difficult time of suffering and heartache where I'm in one right now or I'm going into one right now. All of us can say, there is a trial in my life. But if you don't turn to the Word of God, Matthew 13:22, the worries of this life, the seedfulness of wealth can choke the seed of God's Word. But if you turn to the Word of God, He's pruning you. He'll, he'll, he'll prune this right now. He's, he'll prune you and make you more fruitful in the future. Don't suffer in vain. Right? If you're going to suffer, you might as well grow out of it. But don't waste this opportunity. Secondly, the paradoxical nature of the Christian life really comforts us as believers. In our study of spiritual disciplines, we looked at this side of the curtain, what our responsibilities to grow as believers. You know, we have to mortify sin, redeem the time, we have to read the scriptures, we have to pray, we have to form godly friendships and we got to do it we have to do all these things but in John 15 too, you know our Lord lifts the curtain and reveals what God is doing like God is working in our lives and He is doing everything to make us more holy make us more pure to produce genuine growth in our lives Philippians 2 12 and 13 work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to every good purpose. And in all things, God works for the good. What is the good? Not our good, the good, Christ-likeness. In everything, God's intention is to use everything in our lives to promote Christ-likeness in us. Oh, if, you're, if you had a hard week, had a hard month in your growth, you can rest on that. God, you know, I'm, I'm a little tired now, but... You're pruning me. You are working. I'll trust in you. You will do it. You are the author of my faith and you are also the perfecter. You will not give up on me. All right. Thirdly, 
May this teaching inspire us to be the most content in terms of our physical situation, but to be most discontent concerning our spiritual state. May we never say, wow, enough fruit. I've, I've produced enough. You know, I'm kind of young. Let's not take this thing too seriously. It's good enough for me. May that never be said from our lips. May we say, Christ called me to bear more fruit for His own glory. May we be currently discontent with how much we love Christ, love one another, our state of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. In these spiritual areas, may we be so discontent that we resolve again to pursue Christ with greater diligence and fervency. Our Father, we do thank You and praise You, God, for the Word today. We are comforted that You are indeed vine dresser, farmer, the gardener, and we're the branches that have fruit, and that You are pruning us in the Word of God as You teach us, remind us, correct, rebuke, admonish, and encourage us with the Scriptures. You're removing all the things in our lives that are hindering us from honoring Your name. It's causing us from um, honoring Your name for this world. Lord, uh, the sufferings and afflictions that we are going through, may they not, uh, may we not listen to the afflictions. And may the afflictions cause us to listen to Your word more earnestly, more humbly. May the sufferings in our lives cause us to be alert to the truth of God's Word so that we might be even more fruitful. In Jesus' name we pray.